On the Nicene Creed, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are so gracious. We thank you, thank you, thank you for the um, fact that we, we are not inventing this thing. This is, uh, we are here on the shoulders of giants, uh, many, many centuries of giants, Lord. We come today to, uh, to explore and to relive and to think about, begin thinking about the Nicene Creed, which is the, really the foundation of Orthodox Christianity, and just pray that you would um, speak to us. Help us to see your mercy and your grace. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, I um, am so glad that you were here. First of all, can I just say, wow, that was a lot of breakfast that got served. And wow, great job, breakfast team. Um, they made enough for 20 people and served uh, 50 people. So that was, it was a miracle right in our midst. And uh, that might be a little bit of an exaggeration. But... Um, so we're going to, today's January 7th, this will go through, I've got it marked out, this will go through March 17th, so the week before Palm Sunday, so mostly through Epiphany and, uh, and Lent, except for February 4th, which will be our annual parish meeting, which will take place in this time. Um, so today we're talking about the Council of Nicaea, which is where the Nicene Creed originated. Uh, it was not finished at the Council of Nicaea. But, um, but I, so I don't usually do, like, I usually do scripture, you know, maybe some topics that I can relate to scripture. I don't usually do history, so this is kind of new for me. It took a little more uh, prep than I'm, I'm used to doing for the class, which is great. I learned a lot. I hadn't really revisited the history around this uh, since, probably since seminary, honestly. Council of Nicaea happened in, in 325 A.D., so a couple years ago, 325 A.D., around 300 A.D., so let's back up about 25 years from the Council of Nicaea, the Roman Empire was experiencing a period of relative peace under the leadership of Emperor Diocletian. Diocletian... This, was, this is representing, this is, uh, Josh Pressel was, was uh, quick to point out that this map might not exactly be to scale. <laughs> and then any Turks in the room would be highly offended. But, um, but, but it's, um, so this, uh, so you can see the Mediterranean, the Black Sea, up here is uh, the Germanic territories. But everything that has color on it, that was uh, roughly the... Um, the Roman Empire. It's pretty remarkable, actually, if you think that from basically Austria uh, to the Sahara, and all, including the entire Mediterranean Sea, uh, belonged to Rome, within the Roman Empire, and all the way up into Great Britain. Um, thank you, my love. Forgot this. Um, so the, uh, let's see, we're going to put this, I'm going to put this right here. Thanks. Thanks, table. Um, so Diocletian uh, ruled this part, the eastern part of the emperor, uh, in the empire, and then he was what was called the Augustus. And there were two Augustuses, uh, two emperor Augustuses. It was Diocletian and Maximian. And Maximian was uh, Italy and basically Libya and uh, Algiers, or uh, we, we, what we think. Then you had Constant, Const, Constantius Chlorus, 
Spain, Portugal, Gaul, which is France, Great Britain, Morocco. Okay, and then Galerius was basically Greece and the Baltics. 300 AD, 295 or so, the, uh, the Christian movement is growing. But it, it is very young. It's mostly among the poor, uh, poorer classes. And you had these, uh, so I, I, two Augustuses, Maximian and Diocletian, and then two Caesars, uh, Constant, we were like junior emperors, Con- Constantius, Chlorus, and uh, Galerius. Galerius was a piece of work. But uh, the problem, you probably don't get to be emperor without being a piece of work. But uh, there was no real consensus among Christians at that time, as they're a growing movement, about whether or not Christians could or should be in the army. You can imagine, you can understand this sort of, the wonder, the difficulty there. Am I going to um, serve this king or am I going to serve King Jesus? Am I going to kill for this king? Am I going to be killed for this king? So it's, it, it, was, it was a debate. But around 295, um, some Christians were condemned to death, some for refusing to join the army, and some for trying to leave the army. And this, um, it wasn't because they were Christians, it was because of what they were either refusing to do or trying to do. It just happened that they were Christians, and it was their Christian belief that led them to their actions. This was all in Galerius' territory. And uh, Galerius uh, saw this potential as a great danger, because uh, what, what happens in a moment of battle at a critical moment when a Christian decides, I'm not going to obey my commander. And so he convinced Diocletian. Diocletian was a very strong uh, politician, but seems to have had a weakness for Galerius. Uh, Galerius was stronger uh, and, and more um, sort of, uh, I don't know, sh- uh, strident and, and, and really forced Diocletian to make these decisions. He convinced Diocletian to expel all Christians from the military in Rome. And, and yet, what happened, so no big deal, Christians couldn't be in the military, right? Except for some generals said, wait a second, that's going to thin our ranks. And so some uh, generals said, no, Christians, you have, to, uh, con- you have to convert, you have to deny your Christian faith and stay in my army. And when they wouldn't, they were killed. Where do you th- what army do you think they were in? Galerius' army. Galerius then... Um, convinced Diocletian to, because of this problem that was developing in his army, he convinced Diocletian to expel all Christians from any position of government throughout the entire Roman Empire, and to destroy Christian buildings and burn all the sacred writings. So now we're having some problems, because the Christians start to rise up and say, "Uh uh-uh, like, whether or not we can be in the army is one thing, but you're going to take our buildings and you're going to take our scriptures? We can't have that. And so they start breaking out in these sort of skirmishes uh, against Christians. Um, and they refused to turn over their writings. And, I mean, you know, it's just, it was the time it was. And so if they refused the government, what happened? They were condemned to death. That's what happened. So then there's two fires that break out in Galerius's imperial palace. And who does he blame? The Christians. Now, the Christians, uh, some, a couple of Christian writers of that time actually said Galerius lit the fires himself, so he could blame this, the 
the Christians. And um, yeah, we, that's, that's, not, that's a page out of history. So Diocletian responded to this accusation, because he couldn't out Galerius for, for this, so he goes along with the accusation. He decrees that all Christians who are in the imperial court have to offer sacrifice to the Roman gods. And there were some who complied, but many were martyred. You can see what's happening, right? And what's becoming a problem throughout the empire. And then came, because, it, because his will was being defied by some, he decreed that all Christians, anywhere in the empire, must offer sacrifice to the Roman gods. And as he's doing this, the sacred writings are continuing to be taken away. Let me ask you this. If the government, I mean, this is a, a sort of dystopian uh, question, but if it came to pass, and I'm not suggesting that it could possibly come to pass in our lifetime, but if it came to pass that the government came and said, you, ha- you must turn over to us your Bibles, all Bibles in your house, would you do it? And I think that there's some who would and some who wouldn't. And, and, and like I just, that's kind of the situation that they found themselves in. What happens... Yeah, no problem. I've got so much of it memorized at this point. No big deal. It's on my phone. Well, they couldn't say that, right? So, um, so um, right. So, so um, many suffered, began to suffer martyrdom. And in fact, it was actually an aspiration to Christians because it was seen as a great blessing uh, that God would count them worthy to suffer. You know, there's this passage in uh, the Revelation of John, the Apocalypse, that, that says... Um, talks about the white-robed martyrs, and it was a great gift. And, and of course, their bodies were uh, brought about, and they became saints, and, and, um, and they became, um, their bodies became, uh, what am I trying to say? Relics. Relics is the word. Um, so, um, persecution was raging across the empire, with the exception uh, that it only was mildly happening uh, as sort of reluctantly under Constantius Chlorus in the West. Then Diocletian got sick, and Galerius saw his chance. He forced him to abdicate. First he asked him to, then he forced him to, uh, and it, Galerius became the Augustus. Galerius then went to Maximian, because Galerius now has this much stronger army, and says, if you don't abdicate... I'm coming to get you, and, and threatens, to, um, uh, threatens to invade uh, the, the purple, right? And so, um, and so Maximian abdicates as well, and now Galerius, Galerius and Constantius Chlorus, and there are a couple of junior um, uh, Caesars, I think, that uh, like uh, Licinius and somebody, Max, Maximus Deus, uh, but they... So they're the Caesars, but, but it's really it's Constantius Chlorus and Galerius. And Galerius has in his court, as a captive, Constantius Chlorus's son, whose name is Constantine. Constantine says, this is no good, and I, I've got to get out of here. And so he orchestrates this escape. I don't know, that's probably a fascinating story in its own right. I do not know that story. Um, and, and so Constantine... Uh, escaped and joined his father, and then Constantius died of illness, and Constantine, who was very popular among the troops, was declared the Augustus by the troops. And so he had a pretty strong army, and he was off, way off to the west, and so Galerius didn't bother him too much. Galerius is, is reveling in his own power, and Constantine is just biding his time. <clears throat> 
because civil wars, Maximian's forces, Diocletian, somebody wanted the, the power here. Their civil wars are breaking out. All Little skirmishes are breaking out all over the eastern part of the empire. Constantine's just biding his time. He's, he's uh, really solidifying his forces against the barbarians of the north and just getting stronger and stronger, not making any waves. Uh, what we see about Constantine is he's incredibly judicious and incredibly patient. He is calculating very, very smart. And, um, and so uh, civil wars are breaking. Many, claim, many were claiming power in different parts of the empire, and Constantine is just biding, biding his time. And then Galerius got very sick because, you know, they lived in the early 300s, right? And so um, and it got back to him pretty quickly that this was the judgment of God, the Christian God, against him. And because he understood that's how God's work, he said, he said there could be something to this. And so he let the, all the, by, his, by imperial edict, he ended the persecution and said Christians must be released from prison, no more torture, they can be in, they can be in the armies, but they have to pray for our good. And that was the only caveat. And so in, um, in 311... Christians were released from prison, bearing the marks of torture, but grateful for the intervention of God, and Galerius died five days later. <laughs> so now you have four new emperors. You have Constantine, Licinius, who's in Greece, Galerius' old territory. You have Max, Maximinus Dia and Maxentius. Maximinus Dia is over here. Maxentius is where his dad was. And for some reason, it was not explained in my history book, um, Maxentius was considered a usurper, which is to say he came to power illegally. Constantine makes a, a uh, sort of secret truce with Licinius, and then when he was least expected, he took a quarter of his troops. That's how strong he was. It only took a quarter of his troops. He marched over to the Alps and marched on Rome. It would have been much stronger. This is October of 312. It would have been much smarter for Maxentius to stay inside the city walls of Rome. But he did not. He presented for battle along the Tiber River on the Milvian Bridge. And the night before battle, Constantine had a vision. Some historians say it was a dream. But the voice from heaven of the supreme God spoke to him and said, place this symbol on your, uh, all of your shields and all of your banners, and in this sign you will conquer. I don't know if you can see it. I can't, there it is. Oh, it's not very dark. So it's the Cairo. We have this symbol in some of our vestments still. The thing that looks like a P is a Greek rho. The X is a chi. Incidentally, when people say Xmas, they mean chi-mas, which is the first letter of Christ. Don't get offended. Um, So, very strange that this Christian God would come to Constantine and say, in this sign, you will conquer. So, Constantine... 
tell, he's, the, he's the Augustus, and so everybody does what he says, and so he, they all paint their, the Cairo on this. And what happens on the Milvian Bridge, but Maxentius falls into the river and drowns. Why, they, why, did he, why didn't he just stay back off the bridge? I don't know. But Constantine won, defeating Maxentius, and he took full control of the Western Empire, all the purple and green. Now, eventually, he would become the sole emperor over all of it. And, um, but Constantine, uh, so all the, finally the persecution was totally ended because uh, under the, these newer um, uh, emperors, some of, the, some of the, the persecution was flaring up again. But under Constantine, because he had won under this sign, the Edict of Milan, all persecution for, against Christians was ended. Um, and Constantine's conversion was actually a years-long process. Uh, in fact, he was only baptized just before his death like on his deathbed. But the vision before the Milvian Bridge changed the course of history. That cannot be understated. Um, No, it cannot be overstated. It cannot be overstated. Uh, The case is easily made, I would say arguably, but easily made that this is the most important and influential conversion to Christianity in all of history, with the possible accession of St. Paul himself. It has massive implications for today's church. Constantine was a shrewd politician, and in fact, he never gave up his role as supreme pontiff of the pagan gods. And he was, again, he was only baptized as a Christian on his deathbed. But Christians began to experience a social freedom and even a social prestige that they had never experienced before. Vestments began to look a lot like senatorial vestments. Church buildings began to look a lot like Roman gathering places. And in fact, the Romans, from what I remember very distinctly in seminary, the Romans had this really lovely, uh, it's almost like a necktie, but it it was just a long piece of... um, fabric that hung on uh, either side of one's neck. <laughs> and uh, that the church has retained that and, may, and de- not deified it, but sort of blessed it and said, oh, no, this is, we've always done this <laughs> since Constantine. So another sign of uh, prominence. Yes, another sign of, of prominence. And, and so they were, and interestingly, uh, Constantine seems to increasingly have treated the Christian God as a supreme God but he did so in the context of his own pagan background. And so when he, when he would make, do things to promote Christianity or aid in the freedom of Christians, he did so in order to curry the favor of the Christian God. It was, it was essentially a sacrifice, not out of any real evangelical or orthodox conviction. Now, so this is all happening. Constantine is becoming uh, a Christian, and he's becoming the sole emperor of, of the Roman Empire. As all of this is happening, down in the coastal Egyptian town of Alexandria, a theological controversy was brewing. Again, Christianity was still young, and you can understand that theolo- Christian theology was not developed. People had ideas all over the place. And, and the context of these 
theological ideas was Greek philosophy, right? This is how they learned to think and debate one another. The New Testament was still in formation. And how the Gospels and how St. Paul was to be interpreted was still forming. Different theologians, different bishops, different presbyters. I'm a presbyter. That's another, like a priest, it's a sort of parish overseer. Um, that, that They're all offering different ideas. Not exclusive to one another, but they're just figuring it out. Right? So, some parts of, of Greek philosophy said that there was a supreme being who was immutable, impassable, unchangeable. And Christians began to adopt these words from the, using the Scriptures, showing that how the Scriptures were actually always pointing to that being, or those, that being was always pointing to their being. And God is Father. But then there's the Logos. Remember that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. That word is Logos. It means Word. The reason of God uh, who is personal, capable of direct relationships. That is... Um, that some of the Christians were saying that between this immutable and impassable uh, God and the mutable, changeable, uh, always chaotic world, there is the Logos, which is the means by which we have a relationship with the Father. That makes good sense to us. Like we, that translates. We understand what that means. Um, it, was the, it was between us. But in Alexandria, there was a very popular presbyter, a uh, prestigious presbyter named Arius. And Arius taught that the Word, the Logos, was created by God the Father. He, that is, he was not, it was not co-eternal with God. He taught that Jesus was the first created being. No one is wondering if Jesus was there in the beginning. He was. It just was that he was the first creation, according to Arius. His bishop taught that the Word was co-eternal with the Father. There was never a time when the, the, God the Son was not. He was always Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was never a time. That's what we understand uh, as Trinitarian theology. At stake, it sounds like a very fine, glaze your eyes over theological point, but at stake is the divinity of Jesus. Is He divine or is He not? If you remember reading... Um, uh, the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. They talk about this. And someone says, you mean it was the divinity of Jesus was decided by a vote? And he says, yeah, and it wasn't even a, it wasn't a, um, it was a close vote at that. It was not a close vote. It was like several hundred to three, which we'll talk about in, in a minute. Arius claimed that Alexander was denying Christian monotheism. We are monotheists. There is one God. Right, And he was saying, if there are two divine beings, or three divine beings, then you are not a monotheist, and therefore you are a heretic, Alexander. And Alexander said, no, Arius is the heretic because he's denying the divinity of the Word, and therefore he's denying the divinity of Jesus. And that would have massive, massive implications for whether or not his death was atoning. So the deeper you get into this controversy, you realize the more important it really is. It's got to be solved. And he showed that either, Alexander showed that either this church had to stop worshiping Jesus or it had to acknowledge that it was worshiping a created being if it was to follow Arius. And neither one of those things was acceptable. So Alexander, being the bishop, removed Arius 
from all ecclesiastical posts in Alexandria because he deemed him a heretic. But he was super popular. And so he went to the next door bishop and the next door bishop from them who said, nah, that sounds pretty good to us. And there began to be demonstrations throughout the streets of Alexandria chanting Arian uh, uh, slogans like, there was when he was not. There was when he was not. And um, meaning there was a time. That was sort of their main, there was a time when he was not. It sounds bizarre to us that they would be uh, parading through the streets, uh, chanting these things. But as you can imagine, it was not bizarre to them, and it broke out, began to break out, not just in Alexandria, but all around uh, the Roman Empire, especially in the East. And this happened just about the time that Constantine defeated Licinius and became the sole emperor, and so he stepped in. And he sent his main Christian emissary, Bishop Hosius of Cordova, over in uh, the West, Spain now. Um, and he, he, he sent him to just work it out. Just get, bring him to the table, help him to see that, you know, this is just a silly little argument. And Hosius came back and said, that ain't happening. <laughs> These people are nuts. And so Constantine called... An un- made an unprecedented... Remember, Constantine has not been baptized yet. But he's the pontiff. And so he has made... He calls a gathering, a council, of all Christian bishops throughout the Roman Empire to gather at Nicaea in 325 at his expense. And let me tell you, when Christian ministers here, I'm going to pay for your great vacation... <laughs> They will take you up on it. (laughs) From the east, from the west, most only knew each other by reputation, but there were over 300 bishops who came. Present among them is said to have been uh, St. Nicholas of Myra, uh, Santa Claus himself. A historian named Eusebius of Caesarea, which is not to be confused with Arius' main Episcopal um, supporter, Eusebius of Nicomedia. Eusebius of Caesarea was a historian. And this is what he said, and you can hear the echo uh, in it, and I'd love to hear what, where you recognize some of these words. But this is what he says about this gathering. There were gathered the most distinguished ministers of God from the many churches in Europe, Libya, which is Africa, and Asia, a single house of prayer, as if enlarged by God, sheltered Syrians and Cilicians, Phoenicians and Arabs, delegates from Palestine and from Egypt, Thebans and Libyans, together with those from Mesopotamia. There was also a Persian bishop, and a Scythian was not lacking, Pontus, Galatia, Pamphylia, Cappadocia, Asia and, Asia and Phrygia, sent their most outstanding bishops. What is this an echo of? Paul's Pentecost. Pentecost. Y'all, this is Laura. She just got here and just showed all you up. (laughs) So glad you're here, Laura. Pentecost. Pentecost, that's right. Jointly with those from the remotest areas of Thrace, Macedonia, Achaia, Epirus, even from Spain, there was a man of great fame, Hosius of Cordova, who sat as a member of the Great Assembly, the bishop of the imperial city, that's Rome, 
could not attend due to his advanced age, but he was represented by his presbyters. Constantine is the first ruler of all time to have gathered such a garland in the bond of peace and to have presented it to his Savior as an offering of gratitude for the victories he had won over all his enemies. Thank you, Jesus, that you've given me all this power. Now, there was a small group there of staunch supporters of Arius' position. The bishop Eusebius of Nicomedia being the principal. Uh, and he, they just they said, all we got to do is state our case. We've been misrepresented. Once they hear it, they're going to understand and they're going to just sign, us, uh, sign it off and dismiss Alexander. But there was a small group of supporters of Alexander, the bishop, uh, Arius' bishop, who believed Arius' teaching threatened the very core uh, of Christianity. And so it has to be, had to be condemned. Arius, Arianism had to be condemned in the strictest possible terms. There was another group there that believed that the Father and the Son were in fact the same. And so the Father, therefore, had suffered the passion. Most thought this was kind of a silly argument and didn't really uh, come very interested. They came because Constantine called for it and he was going to pay their way. And they came, they came for the prime rib and they came to see, for Pentecost, right? And so uh, they, were, they were content with this, uh, in this argument, they were content with the ancient formula, three persons, one substance. Sounds pretty good. So Bishop, you see, but they have other things to talk about, like how are presbyters ordained, selected and ordained and, uh, and what does the administration of the church look like and all these things. But the main thing was, was Arian, the Arian controversy. And so Eusebius, Arian can't make the claim because he's not a bishop. Eusebius gets up and makes his presentation. Jesus is not divine. He's created. But he was there in the beginning. There was an angry outburst. An angry outburst. Now, on December 6th, in your Facebook feed, you probably saw uh, icons of St. Nicholas getting up and punching an Arian. It makes for for good uh, theater, but it probably didn't happen. But it's a fun story. So suddenly the majority of the West are not just interested, but urgent to condemn this heresy that Jesus was not divine. They sought to condemn it in unmistakable terms. They were going to just simply gather the appropriate scriptures. But they saw quickly that so could Arius. Because his his arguments were not without scriptural merit. But you had to cherry pick. And so taking the breath of it, they said, no, what we need to do is is come up with a, a brief statement of orthodox Christianity. We will... And I don't know what they called it. We've come to call it a creed. Creed is from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. Um, and I don't know, so I, I mean the word would be something around uh, pistuo or something like that in, um, in Greek. So I don't know exactly what they would have called this statement. But the creed followed Matthew 28, verse 19, which Jesus says, Go and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's why when we read the Nicene Creed, or the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. And finally, we believe, I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's, those, that's always a Trinitarian statement. Um, and it's, the creed, this creed, their, their statement, stridently separated orthodoxy, 
And I don't mean Greek Orthodoxy, because that comes in about the year 1000. But um, Christian Orthodoxy from Arianism. And celebrated the divinity of Jesus as God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He was begotten. He was not made. He was not made. And so there, that when you read that, you are speaking into the Arian controversy uh, of the three, early 300s. Now, Constantine himself, as he's presiding, and he is the pontiff, even though he's uh, not yet a Christian or not officially one anyway, suggested that they were, use the word homoousios, as you know. Homoousios is the Greek word that we translate of the same substance, of one being with, of the same substance. This was, it was adopted because he's, that made good sense at the time in, in the context of their, uh, of, their, uh, of their discussions. But it would become very controversial because if he's of the same substance, then now are we in fact saying that the Father and the Son are not distinct? We must say that they are distinct. And so people began to not use this Nicene Creed. What happened was uh, at, the, at the Council of Nicaea is that Constantine condemned and deposed all who would not sign the creed, which is about three bishops. Everybody else signed it. They didn't want to get deposed. They didn't want to get killed or whatever was going to happen. And the firm stamp of what we would call Nicene Orthodoxy, uh, was put on Christianity. However, because people stopped using very early this Nicene Creed, and because Eusebius was quite a politician, he weaseled his way back into the imperial court, and Constantine said, you know, maybe I was a little hard on those Arians. And in fact, when Constantine was baptized on his deathbed, He was baptized by none other than the Arian bishop Eusebius of Nicomedia. Very interesting. What we know as the Nicene Creed would be developed over a couple hundred more years, particularly at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Theological questions would continue to be refined. That is the story of how we get what we got the Nicene Creed, which we state, the foundation of orthodoxy. We say it every week in the Eucharistic uh, service right after the sermon. Why do we say it right after the sermon? In case, you in case the sermon was heretical. <laughs> At least you finished with something that is true. right? What I'd really like to do is to talk about the Latin word credo, I believe, uh, but I'm going to leave you uh, in your table groups to say, ask you to talk to each other. What do you mean? What does it mean? And what do you mean when you say, I believe? I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. What do you mean? And I'm going to leave you with that question to talk amongst yourselves because I have two babies that I got to baptize and I got to go tell their families how it's going to work. So I'm super excited about that. Come to church if you haven't been to church. And we're going to have a great baptism and um, a fabulous sermon. And, um, and then uh, and we will talk next week about Credo. And we will talk about, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Okay?
What do you mean when you say, I believe? Go. 